tonight we are finally coming out of the wilderness. Now, you should applaud and be very happy for that because we have been studying, if you're visiting with us tonight or not been here the last few months, we have been studying what the children of Israel went through as they had come out of Egyptian bondage on their way to the promised land, a journey that should have taken 11 days, took 40 years. And to say thousands, hundreds of thousands of people died in the wilderness. And so here they are for these 40 years. We read about this experience in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, first part of Joshua. What we've been doing on these Wednesday nights, we have selected the book of Numbers. And we've just been walking through that book, thinking about some of the experiences that the Israelites had in the wilderness. And we've tried to answer the question, what can we learn in our wildernesses of life? Because we all have those wilderness seasons, those times in life. We feel like we're going around in circles. We feel like it's maybe a dry season. And so tonight, thankfully, we end our study uh, from the wilderness. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to be in the book of Numbers. But would you turn, please, to the book of Luke in chapter number 24. I want us to begin there tonight. And I want to show you a verse. But before I show you a verse, I want to make this statement. There are many people who, when they think about the Bible, they think that the Old Testament is about the holiness and the judgment of God, and the New Testament is about the grace and the love of God. Many people think that. Let me say, that's wrong. The entire Bible is about the holiness, the judgment, the grace, and the love of God. Those themes run through the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. There are other people who look at the Bible, and they say the Old Testament is about God. And the New Testament is about Jesus. Wrong again. Jesus is God. And Jesus runs like a golden thread. Someone has called it like a scarlet thread all through the Old Testament. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see Jesus clearly. He's in the flesh. He's out in the open. He's dealing with people. He's preaching. He's healing. He's doing all these things. Jesus is easy to see in the New Testament. He's not as easy to see in the Old Testament, but he is nonetheless there. Now, in Luke chapter 24, this is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is up from the grave, and uh, he's conquered death. And on this particular day, there were these two men who lived in a place called Emmaus. Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they had been in Jerusalem for the weekend. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet When he died on that cross and was buried, they were hoping that he was going to come back to life again, and yet they had missed out on the resurrection, and they did not understand or believe that Jesus was alive. And so Jesus gets on this Emmaus road. If you've been to Israel, maybe you've walked it. We have, or maybe you've at least seen it. But on that Emmaus road, Jesus begins to go after these two hopeless, sad disciples, And he's listening to their conversation, and he says to them, what is it that you're talking about today? You both seem so sad. And they said, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened in these last few days? And Jesus said, what things are you talking about? And they said, well, how this man named Jesus, who we thought was the Messiah, had died on the cross and been buried, and we thought he was going to be our deliverer and our conqueror, and and now he's dead. And Jesus is listening to this, and they don't recognize him as Jesus. He's not revealed himself to them as such yet. And then look what he says in verse 25. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? You see, the problem that many of the people had in the first century with Jesus, certainly the problem that the Jews had, even one of his disciples when he was first called Simon the Zealot, they were all hoping that the Messiah was coming to liberate them from Roman oppression. That's what they were counting on. They were looking for a a Savior who would free the nation of Israel from Roman oppression and who would set up a kingdom right then and right there on the earth. And yet Jesus didn't come to do that. Jesus came to set up a spiritual kingdom, and they were wanting an earthly kingdom. You can see the parallels in our day. So many people, and we all want everything in our country and our world to be right in the eyes of God, and that's a noble cause to work for, but I think many of us have gone too far with that. Many of us have put all of our eggs in the basket that we want America and we want the world to be, you know, what the Jewish people wanted it back then. We, we want everything to be just right here and now. While it's a noble goal, while we should pursue that, friend, remember this. We are members of another kingdom, and things will not be made perfectly right until the king comes back to this earth, and he will rule and reign with a rod of iron. And so our frustration with what's happening in the world should not just lead us to try to make the world better, although we should. It should lead us to look up and to remember that we're closer now to his coming than we have ever been. And yet the Jews of that day were very much like us today. They wanted the problem solved in this life, in this kingdom. And this is why Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through here. This one day, Jesus will come back, and one day he will literally rule and reign on that day. But until then... Yes, we work. Yes, we pray. Yes, we do everything we can. But the kingdom is not going to be right and fully established until Jesus comes back. And so he's explaining, and he says in verse 26, ought not the Christ, the Messiah, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? You see, the idea of the Messiah suffering was just impossible for the Jewish people to digest. He was to be the conqueror, the ruler, the deliverer. And yet he's suffering, and he's being beaten, and he's being killed on the cross. And they're thinking, surely this is not Jesus. Now look at verse 27. And beginning at Moses, now Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now think about that. Here's Jesus. And Jesus is saying to these disciples, you don't understand the Messiah. You think I came to set up a political empire, a political kingdom. That day is coming, but that day has not come yet. I didn't come to do that now. I came to set up a spiritual kingdom. I came to solve the sin problem. And he was saying to those disciples, you look in the Old Testament and you see all these passages about the Messiah conquering and ruling and reigning. And you don't understand, those passages are referring to the millennium. It's a future event. And you have neglected the other passages in the Old Testament that talk about, I'm the suffering servant. I've come to pay for the sins of the world. And so Jesus did a very interesting thing. Beginning with Genesis, he began to walk through the entire Old Testament. And he began to explain to these men from all 39 books in the Old Testament how he was hidden and tucked away in all the writings of Moses and in all the Psalms and in all the writings of the prophets. And we don't know what he said. 
We would all give anything to have been part of that Bible study, right? Here's Jesus, and he's telling us what it was like and, 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 and where he could be found in the Old Testament. And so today, I started thinking about this, and I'm thinking, Lord, what was it that you said to these two disciples, beginning in Moses and through all the prophets, what was it you said? Well, we don't know what he said, but we know this. We know that Jesus was just as real in the Old Testament as he is in the New. We know this, for example, in Genesis Jesus is what? He's the creator of the world, and he's the seed of the woman. Think about that. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the sacrifice for our sins, and he is the great high priest. In Numbers, he's the bronze serpent lifted up on that pole so that if we'll look to him in faith, we can be saved. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet who's greater than Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the Lord's army. In Judges, he's the last judge, and his rulings can never be appealed or overturned. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the anointed king who does what? Who slays the giant. In First and Second Kings, he's king of kings and lord of lords. In First and Second Chronicles, we know that his kingdom never ends. In Ezra, who is Jesus? He's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and broken lives. In Esther, he is the protector of his people. In Job, he is the living redeemer. Job said, I know that my redeemer lives and that his feet will one day stand on this earth. He's the living redeemer in Job who does what? Who takes indescribable bad and brings indescribable good out of it. In Psalms, the Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom and he's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Ecclesiastes, he, ch- he keeps us and prevents us from chasing after the wind where we say, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. In Ecclesiastes, we learn that Jesus Christ is the meaning of life. In the Song of Solomon, what do we find? We find that Jesus is our heavenly bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the promised Messiah, but he's also the wonderful counselor the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and the Mighty God. Not only that, he's the suffering servant who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. In Jeremiah, we see Jesus. Where is he in Jeremiah? I'll tell you where he is. Jesus in Jeremiah is the potter sitting patiently at the wheel, molding us and shaping us into the image that he intends for us to be. In Lamentations, Jesus is the weeping prophet, but not only that, he's the one whose mercies are new every morning. In Ezekiel, where is Jesus there? I'll tell you where he is. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the river of life that brings life and healing to everything it touches. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, where is Jesus? Who is Jesus there? It's obvious who he is in Hosea. He's the faithful husband who is pursuing his unfaithful bride. In Joel, Jesus is the one who restores the years that the locust has eaten, and he pours out his spirit on his people. In Obadiah, he gets the last word on evil, and he's the one who has said to the evil one, as you have done, it will be done to you. In Amos, he's our burden bearer. In Jonah, where is Jesus there? He's right in the middle of the story of Jonah, and we know there that he is the one who's offering salvation to the whole world, people of all nations, no matter how sinful and wicked they may be. 
Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. In Micah, where is Jesus? We read that he'll be born in Bethlehem and that he would eventually cast our sins into the depths of the sea. In Nahum, we read that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. In Habakkuk, where is he there? He's in Habakkuk, and he's reminding us that the just shall live by faith. In Zephaniah, he rejoices over us with singing. In Haggai, he is the desire of all nations. In Zechariah, he's the open fountain drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And, uh, and all the sinners who come to him, we'll lose all of our guilt and we'll lose all of our stains. And in Malachi, he is the risen son with healing in his wings. Jesus is all through the Old Testament, beginning in Jesus and Genesis and ending in Malachi. But you know, as I was thinking about that, now you ought to say amen right there on that. You know, <laughs> when, I, when I was starting to do that tonight, I looked down at my little table and I left my notebook over there with all those words and I thought, man, I'm going to be in trouble when I start without my notes. But anyway, God helped me through it. But you know, as wonderful as it is to go from Genesis to Malachi, all that I just said, did you know this? Jesus is more than all that. Jesus is Noah's ark. Jesus is the manna from heaven. Jesus is water from the rock. Now think about this. And he's the rock itself. Jesus is Abraham's ram caught in the thicket so that he could die in the place of Isaac. And tonight in Numbers chapter 35, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is symbolized and typified by these six cities of refuge. So go there tonight to Numbers chapter number 35, and we're going to be thinking tonight about the cities of refuge. Now, what's interesting about this is that I had planned on ending this series two weeks ago. And in my spirit, it was just like God said, not yet. You don't, I didn't have a release to end it. And so last week, we studied about those two and a half tribes, Reuben Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, who set up camp short of the promised land. We talked last Wednesday night about don't settle for less than God's best. And that's what they did. Tonight, we're thinking about something that I've never preached on. I doubt you've ever heard a sermon on it. Maybe you have. Doubt you have. We're thinking tonight about these six cities of refuge that God told Moses to set up, three on the eastern side of the Jordan River, three on the western side, actually in Canaan, in the Promised Land. Now, before we get into this, I want us to see a map tonight. I wanted to have a map last week, failed to do it, but here's the map that I want you to see tonight of Israel. Now, you see right in the middle of that map is the Jordan River. It starts at the top in the north at Mount Hermon, comes right down to the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, into the Dead Sea, and it dies there. We've talked about that before. Now, the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. To the east is Syria and Jordan. Now, the promised land that they were going in to possess was on this side, on the western side of the Jordan River. And this is why when those other tribes, Reuben, Gad, half-tribe Manasseh, got this close to it, they said, this is good enough. And God said, not my, I mean, in essence, God was thinking, it's not my plan, but I'll let you settle there if that's what you want, but it's not the promised land. Now, these six cities that we're going to be studying about tonight, again, three on the west, three in the promised land, and three on the outside of the promised land, Kadesh, Shechem, Jerusalem is not one of those cities. We put that there just so you could have a perspective. Hebron, some case Hebron, Golan, you've heard of the Golan Heights, very much contested piece of real estate today because that's what separates Israel and Syria. 
And whoever has control of the Golan Heights has a major advantage against the other nation. And today, Israel controls, uh, controls this region there. Ramoth and then these are Hebrew words we're dealing with. And so everybody always wants to say the words just right. I'm going to call that Bezer, soft E. Remember this. When you're talking about it, when you're reading these names out of the Old Testament, and the New Testament either one, however you say it isn't right. In other words, you know, we try so hard. We say Adam. Well, it would actually have been Adam. We say Abraham. It would have been Abraham. <laughs> I mean, so we don't, get, we don't say it like they said it. We are Engli- we're, we're putting an English dialect on these words, and that's okay. But those are the six cities. Now, my whole sermon tonight, my whole proposition tonight, is that these six cities are pictures of Jesus. And these six cities help us to understand better who Jesus is for us. Now, Numbers chapter 35, beginning in verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, that is on the eastern side, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan on the western side, which will be cities of refuge. These cities shall be refuge Uh, shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. And so that's what all I want us to see right now. Six cities, if somebody accidentally kills somebody, say, how could you accidentally kill somebody? Well, I mean, you're out working on a project, and and, uh, you're swinging the hammer, and the hammer accidentally slips out of your hand, and it hits somebody else in the temple, and it kills them. Well, it wasn't murder. It wasn't premeditated. You didn't want to kill that person, but you, they, you nonetheless did. Well, these cities of refuge were set up so that in that scenario, you could go to these cities, and now you're safe from that person's family who wants to try to avenge that, that loss on you. When you're in a city of refuge, you are safe. Now, that said, let's go to the book of Joshua, chapter 20, and I want us just to look at this a little more detail here, because in Joshua as opposed to numbers, we read the names of these six cities. And as we begin to think about these names, and what do these names mean? And could these cities be an Old Testament picture of Jesus? Just like the manna from heaven, just like the water from the rock, just like the serpent on the pole. Could this be giving us an insight into the person of Jesus Christ. And so late last night, too late last night, I began to study the meaning of these names, these six names of these cities, and we've printed them for you tonight in the outline. In fact, you have, if you have your outline, look at the introduction. In Old Testament times, there were six cities designated as cities of refuge. If a person had 
unintentionally committed a crime, they could flee to one of these cities and be protected from those who would seek revenge. Tonight, we will see that these Old Testament cities of refuge are a beautiful picture of Jesus. Now, watch this next sentence. With our sins, with our struggles, and with our sadness, we can run to Jesus, our city of refuge. In other words, Jesus is our safe place. He is our place of protection. So let's just think briefly tonight about these six cities. First of all, Kedesh. Now, in verse number 7, Joshua 20 and verse number 7, so they appointed Kedesh. Sometimes this is spelled Kadesh with an A instead of an E. It's the same place. They appointed Kedesh in Galilee in the mountains of of Naphtali. Now, what does Kadesh or Kedesh mean? It literally means... The sacred place, the sanctuary, or the holy place. In other words, the root meaning behind this word Kadesh is holiness. And so as we think about how these cities might, and I think they do, point us to Jesus, the first thing we need to understand about Jesus is his holiness. Think about this. What did we do when we got saved? We took all of our unholiness and laid that unholy sin at the feet of holy Jesus. And what did holy Jesus do? He forgave us of all those sins. And so Kadesh is a place of holiness. And that's where we go. And that's where we find the forgiveness of our sins. And in the second city, notice what it says in verse 7. Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. Now that word Shechem is an interesting word. You know what it literally means? It literally means shoulder. Shoulder. I got thinking last night, now, what is the significance of a shoulder? Well, you know, sometimes in life, you need a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes in life, when your heart is breaking, broken, or breaking, (laughs) breaking and broken, and you're confused, and you're sad, you need a shoulder to cry on, and Jesus is that shoulder. And then look at the next one, and Kerjoth Arba, which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah. Now, Hebron, what does that mean? It literally means friend, friend. You see, one of these cities, the name of it, if we were putting English names on it, we would say this is called a friend. You see what God, in in the mind of God, God was saying, now here's a person out there and the, the, the ax slipped out of his hand, the hammer slipped out, unintentionally they killed a person, that person needs a place to run to. And that person, what they're gonna find is everybody in their village is gonna turn against them. Nobody's gonna stand with them. They need a friend. And so I'm setting up a city to represent me, and the city is called a friend. That's when we were going through that list of Old Testament books. I said Proverbs. I was quoting chapter 18, verse 24, where it says that, that, that Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And then the next one, Bezer. We see this down in verse number 8. Bezer, what does it mean? It means a fortress. Now, why would a person need a fortress? Because they're afraid. Because they're scared because they're intimidated by what's happening in life. And when we get in a fortress, what do we find? We find safety and we find protection. And then the next one, Ramoth. Now, what does that mean? It means the heights. You know the verse that came to my mind last night when I was thinking about that? And it certainly is an appropriate verse as we've seen the horrible hurricane in Florida. And when we have bad storms here, I often think of this verse, Psalm 69.1, where the psalmist said, save me, O Lord for the waters have come up to my neck. You know, sometimes in in a storm, the waters come up to our neck. 
Sometimes in life, circumstances come up to our neck. And we feel like that we're drowning. And we feel like we're not in a, we, we, we need somebody to lift us up. And that's what God does. He, he's the heights. He's the high place that we can go to. And then Golan, what does that literally mean? It means the place of rejoicing. So one of the cities was named Rejoicing. Now, think about that. Why would anybody run to a place of rejoicing? Like in our time today, why would you run to Jesus rejoicing? The same reason the leper ran to Jesus after he had been healed and said thank you. Because he had a problem and Jesus solved the problem and he took time to go back and say thank you. And so today, as I think about our life, and as I think about these Old Testament glimpses of Jesus and and these pictures of Jesus, here we have six cities, and they say to us that whatever your situation is, if you're plagued with guilt over sin, you can come to Kadesh. It is the holy place. If circumstances have broken your heart or a person has broken your heart and you need a shoulder to cry on, you can go to Shechem. If you feel lonely and abandoned and like nobody's in your corner, you can go to Hebron and let Jesus be your friend. If you're afraid because of what's happening in life or you you just need a fortress of safety, you can run to Bezer. If you feel like you're sinking, where you can run to Ramoth and let Jesus lift you up above above those flood waters. And if he has done those things for you, I think about my own life today. I never had thought of these cities quite like this. Really, certainly for a sermon, I never had done anything like this before. But as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I've been to Jesus for all, every one of those things. My sin caused me to go for forgiveness. There have been times I needed a shoulder to cry on. There have been times I felt lonely, I needed a friend. There have been times I've been afraid, I needed a fortress. There have been times I felt like I was sinking and being overcome and overwhelmed, and I needed somebody to lift me up. And Jesus, here's my testimony tonight, Jesus has done all those things for me. And so as a result, what I should do and what you should do is go to Golan, the place of rejoicing, and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Now, when I get to heaven and meet God, I may ask him, God, that sermon I preached down there that night about those six cities being a picture of Jesus and and those meanings I gave, were those six cities a picture of Jesus, or did I overread that? Well, he's either going to say to me, John, you got that just right. Or he's going to say to me, well, you know, I never really thought about that, but it was good what you said. I mean, <laughs> one or the other, I, you know. But whether, whether that is in, I, I'll tell you this, I, I, this much I know. Since we don't know what Jesus told those two disciples on the Emmaus Road, we, we don't know. Maybe I am overreading this night. But I'll say this, even if I'm overreading it, everything I said tonight is true. Jesus is our salvation He's a shoulder to cry on. He's a friend who's closer to a brother. He's a fortress. He's the high place. And he has given us every reason in the world to rejoice. Now, you know, as I was thinking about that today, two verses out of the Old Testament came to my mind. One in Psalms and one in Proverbs. Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. In other words, we can run to him in trouble. And then Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, and they are safe. The reason I think I'm right on these names being, in these cities being an Old Testament 
hidden picture of Jesus is because of Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it, and they are safe. Now, let me ask you this question tonight. As you think about your life, where you are in your life, with your family, your health, your finances, your spiritual life, your sins, your guilt, your fears, is there anything tonight that you need to run to Jesus for? And if there is, let me ask you this question. Is there any reason that tonight you wouldn't just run to Jesus and let him protect you and give you? You know, as I was thinking about it, these cities of refuge in the Old Testament, it was all, it was all about if you had unintentionally killed somebody. Well, I got thinking about that. I thought, now, God, the sins we have committed are not unintentional. We have committed intentional sins. In other words, in the Old Testament, these cities of refuge were cities for people who had sinned. that They messed up without meaning to mess up. They accidentally, unintentionally messed up. But I thought, now, God, that doesn't include me because the sins I've committed, most of them, I've I intentionally did it. I mean, we've all unintentionally sinned, but you think about most of the sins we have done willingly and knowingly. And today I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, God, maybe there's a breakdown there between the cities of refuge and Jesus. This is for the people who really were innocent. They didn't mean to do it. They just trying to get protection. And you know the thought that came to my mind? It was this. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament symbols of him. The Old Testament symbol here protected you if you had done something unintentionally. But Jesus is greater than that symbol. Jesus says, even for all of you people down there on earth who have knowingly, willingly sinned against me, if you will come to me, I will be your strong tower and I will forgive your sins. And so tonight, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you, you know, tonight in this room, a lot of people with a lot of different issues tonight. And tonight, if you say, I need Jesus to forgive me and save me, then ask him to. Just ask him to right now. Maybe you're already saved, but you say, man, John, I've, I did something more recently, and I just feel so guilty. Ask him to forgive you. Run to the city of refuge. Come to Kadesh tonight, the holy place. Others tonight, maybe you need a shoulder to cry on. Maybe you need a friend. Maybe you need a fortress. Maybe you need God to lift you up to a high place. Just run to him tonight and ask him to be that for you. And if he has already done all of those things for you, you ought to run to Golan, the city of rejoicing, And say, Lord God, thank you that you have been all that to me and more. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Now, Father, I thank you that you have led us through this several-month study of the wilderness. I thank you for the lessons that we have learned. And yet, God, I realize that even though our study of the wilderness is over, that doesn't mean that everybody here is out of the wilderness. But God, help them to know that they're not in the wilderness alone, that you're with them. 
And God, help them to remember that they're not in the wilderness forever. We are bound for the promised land. And we are going to a better place. Lord, we look forward to that day when you open the heavens and come back and establish your kingdom. And the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And you will reign forever and ever. And there will be peace in the Middle East. And there will be peace everywhere else. And God, we look forward to that day. But until that day, God, help us to do our part to make this world more resemble that world. And may it begin in us. And may it begin not only with faith and determination and gusto and enthusiasm and passion. We need all that. But God, may it begin with love and mercy and kindness and all those things that sometimes get swept away in the name of our passion. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen, amen.